Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Friends, hello and welcome. We have a guest today that we think you're going to really enjoy hearing from. Her name is Vashti Somerville, and she's a certified teacher in the state of Idaho, a PCI certified parent coach, and a therapeutic educational consultant. She produces the podcast Teen Connectivity, a show dedicated to helping parents navigate the wilderness of adolescence. And she's got 70 episodes on there of some great content that I have really enjoyed listening to. Well, thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. So we, we're excited to have you and thanks for being on. And, and we invited you on because I think you've got some really great perspectives on a lot of the issues that parents of neurodiverse children, teens, and young adults often struggle with. And so we, we just really appreciate you coming on and taking time for us today. It seems like a lot of your a lot of your skill sets and passions are centered around teens and parenting teens. How did that happen for you? Why is that such a big part of your life? Well, I think it's because I found myself in the trenches with my own kids and, you know, I had some really rough times with them. And and so, you know, I I was a music teacher in my past career and I was also noticing a lot of changes in students, a lot of um, behavioral behavioral changes in the classroom, a lot more students that were on medication um, and just big, big problems. And I think that combined with me sort of uh, the rubber hitting the road with my own kids hitting adolescence. I, you know, there was a lot of learning the hard way for for a pretty long period of time. And I, I came out the other side of some of our personal stuff and said, you know, how can I take my experience as an educator and then my lived experience and sort of combine it and kind of be that person that we needed in some of our more challenging, darker moments in our own family. And I know that, you know, that's a lot of our why for doing this work, right? You guys have had some challenges in your life and look what you've created out of those. It's it's a beautiful part of life. I love that you're so good at taking your life experience and your education and putting words to describe people's experiences. And I love that you're able to give the words necessary for people to do better at what they want to do. And you're really good at that. And that's something I appreciated in your podcast and and since I've known you and been working with you. So good job at that. That's why we wanted to have you on as well. I think you have a lot to offer anyone who's working with our population, parents, coaches, mentors, therapists, teachers. So Well, and I think I'm glad you said that. I just want to preface our conversation by saying that, you know, I don't know what it's like to parent a neurodiverse kid. That's not been something that I've personally had to face. And so, you know, everybody listening is their their own best expert on their family, right? And so the information that I give, I do think there are some universal things that apply just to being human and having relationships with other human beings, but always taking into account that you have to meet your kids where they are developmentally. Um, and that's different for every family. And I also wanted to preface our conversation by saying that I really work hard to not let a diagnosis drive us to over accommodate for our kids. And I think that that's kind of a universal principle, right? Whether the diagnosis is major depressive disorder, or you have a kid that's, uh, that's an ASD kid, just sometimes I think in, in we're well-intentioned and we have a lot of fear and anxiety when we're parenting these kids that present challenges, but sometimes out of our own anxiety or our sense of responsibility to get it right, our own fears, our own sadness, we inadvertently can feed some of the the dysfunctional patterns or the problems by over accommodating. And that's the, I will probably be a big part of our conversation is where's that line where you're making things too easy or maybe making things too hard and kind of finding that sweet spot in the middle um, for where your kid is developmentally. And I think, oh, I love that you, you brought that up because um, it is such a big deal in when you've got a neurodiverse, you know, child, teen, young adult, 
you, we're always trying to advocate and get accommodations and get the supports in place. But then there is that line where we start to over support. We, we over accommodate, then we're doing more harm than good in that, in that circumstance. And we, it's not often talked about, I don't hear anyone actually talking about over accommodating. And so where is that line? I think there are parents out there that don't want to use the diagnoses as a crutch. Like we kind of use that, you know, as a way of describing it, but, but yet they need a crutch. Like, so where is that line? And so what, what tips advice do you have for like figuring out where that line is and how much is the right amount of support and how much is actually hindering? Yeah, I think um, it's a, it's a dance that we have to do, right? And sometimes we're more effective at it than others. And I think it's looking at the concepts of support versus enabling, right? So what's a supportive action versus what's sort of enabling? And I think as our kids get older and and continue to develop, it's turning over things that they are capable of doing, but that maybe out of habit we're continuing to do. So some small examples, like you go to a restaurant, do you continue to place the order for your kid? Or have you kind of turned that task over? Is your kid developmentally at a place where if there's a teacher communication that needs to happen, that they can do that email, that you don't need to do that email? They can learn to self-advocate. Maybe it's filling out a form for something like a sports physical, you know, so just sort of looking every year as, as your kid progresses, what can I turn over to them that's going to help, um, help us with our end game of raising a capable, independent, resilient, compassionate human, right? At whatever level our kid is possible for our kids wiring, right? So just kind of assessing every year, what can I, what can I turn over in terms of tasks, right? But I think another way we enable is rescuing our kids from failures or consequences, right? Sometimes they have to fall. And I think you listened to my, one of my podcasts called the right kind of bubble wrap. (laughs) And I was getting ready to send one of my kids off. Um, She wanted to go backpack in Europe at age 19 or 20. And, and, you know, this was just a couple of years ago and she didn't have a plan and I'm a planner. And I thought, wow, this is kind of a little too loose for me, but I had to, to let that go and say, I don't want to send her with a message that I don't think she's capable of navigating it. So to me, the right kind of bubble wrap in that moment was wrapping her in my confidence in her ability to do what she needed to do to get through the experience, right? And knowing that she's going to get some bruises, but some bruises are important. Some bruises help shape us. But as parents, we want to like, you know, protect them because we have so much anxiety when we see our kids suffering socially or failing at something um, or they're depressed or whatever. We can't contain our anxiety about that typically. Right. There's some specific examples that we deal with a lot. The first one is letting them fail at college when the parents are footing the bill for tuition. It's pretty hard to pay a lot of money for college and then say, well, they're probably going to have to learn the hard way. And, And that's a hard one. And I think our students need someone to walk with them and help them learn to do college as they go. But then it ends up in the end that the parent may got, maybe got the degree or the high school diploma for them. And it never ended up making that shift, either because the parents wouldn't let go or or the student, the child maybe wasn't even capable of doing it on your own. I, I don't, man, there's so many gray areas. It's so easy to sit back and take pot shots at parents who maybe got their high school degree for them largely. And yet, I don't think they started off wanting that. Um, It kind of just ends up sometimes the case. But I think with a little bit better information and self-assessment, they could probably stop and figure out how do we maximize development for this child um, and not undermine them. But if they fail, our type of student, when they hit bottom, they usually just stay curled up in a ball and they don't get up. They don't have that resilience. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a hard balance for parents. It is. And I have some ideas on that, but back to sort of the college thing and maybe failing out your freshman year or, or, you know, just really struggling. I think we can reframe failures a lot of times, or I use the term flip the script on things. And, you know, what information did that um, failure give us? And that information is always really important, both for the kid experiencing the failure and for the parents, right? It's, It's information on where we are and what maybe needs to be to be tweaked and that all the learning isn't the grades and in the classroom, right? That learning is kind of what happened between the lines too. And there's value in that 
Granted, it's really expensive learning when you're writing those tuition checks, but it's still learning. It's still growth. It's development, Um, not getting the, the point isn't the degree. It's the development that's going on as they go. Exactly. Exactly. And I, um, you know, I, I think that you can reframe these challenges and guide your kids to learn more about their inner world, um, guide them to be solvers of their own problems as development mentally appropriate. And, you know, so once again, if you turn something over to them or you, you know, you're like, you're ready to go to college and you go and they, and they don't do it, or you turn a task over to them and they fail, it's not really failure. It's simply information as to where they are at the moment. And I recently, there was a great quote, and I love this quote. Um, I don't know who to attribute it to, but it says, a mind that is stretched by new experiences can never go back to its old dimensions. Right? And so a failure is not really a failure. It's still stretching us in some way, both as the parent and as the... Exactly. The Even if they make the same mistake, the mm-hmm. same choice over and over, you can never make the same choice as the same person. Mm-hmm. Well, and in, in your college example, if, if they're, you know, failing out of, you know, of that term out of college, they still, they went to college, they had experiences there and they're further along the path than they were before not going to college. And right. every little step is some development happening. And, you know, and I, and when you talk about like what turning things over, I really like that. So it's looking at both. It's like, what accommodations do they need to be successful? And then also what can we turn over to them to help them practice mm-hmm. and develop them? Where are they at? And I love the reassessing of that each year. Like, where are they at? What could we give them to practice and learn from and maybe make mistakes on, but then also learn from. And um, yeah. And I, and I think that's a lot more powerful too, instead of panicking about a mistake or a failure, using it as an opportunity to, to connect with your child too and say, okay, well, that didn't go maybe the way you wanted it to go, but what did you learn about yourself? Right. That's always a great question. What did you learn about yourself in that? Yes. So to summarize that tip, it would be quit focusing on the performative success of the task. The task wasn't to complete the class. It was to learn about life, about you, about skills, about resilience, about what you're capable of. And if that's the best you can get out of it and you don't even get the credit for the class, that's still something. It Yeah. And that's probably worth the tuition right there. Right. Um, and I, I like talking to parents a lot about using guiding questions as opposed to lectures, because no kid ever said, please give me another lecture. Not that I've met. What? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'll work with language with parents a lot and using guiding questions. And just like if it's a, maybe a, a perceived failure, you know, asking that question, you know, let's say it's in a class, right? What did you, what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about kind of powering through a subject that you don't like, or maybe working with a person that you don't relate to? What did, what, and what did you learn about your likes and dislikes? Th- that kind of, you know, I, I kind of started creating those questions after I read something in the Conscious Parenting book by Dr. Shafali. And she said, there's two ways to look at a C. You can look at a C as the birth of awareness or the death of potential, right? There's that reframe. So you could, you know, your kid gets a C and maybe they're a really high performing kid and you're you're like look you got a C on your high school transcript now you've closed doors you're you've limited the colleges that you can attend and you can catastrophize right and kind of go into all or none thinking as a parent because you're scared right you want them to have all the opportunities all the doors open but that C has just ruined everything or you could look at that as the C was the birth of awareness and go back to that line of questioning what did you learn about yourself what did you learn about powering through something you don't like your likes your dislikes working you know with someone you don't relate to those are that's a lot more powerful way to look at that i think and and to connect to your kid and learn something deeper about them and help them learn something more about themselves it's the best way to maximize success and minimize damage in any situation is to look at it like that. So that's a great perspective. Well, and, yeah. I, and I like that those questions actually take the focus off of maybe what their own self-worth or the shame of it, which a lot of our students will go there. And it's actually putting it on like the experience part of it and the development side of it and kind of empowering them instead of turning it inward. It's looking outward. Like, what did I learn from this versus like, oh, I'm terrible. And yeah, and put it shaming ourselves or shaming ourselves as parents even. And I, I think that this is pretty powerful process, you know, to use those kind of questions when 
a mistake is made. Like, and I think training ourselves as parents to look at mistakes as windows for learning. So maybe that mistake is, you know, um, they got caught with a vape or, you know, just some something that really scares us as parents. And of course we catastrophize and think, okay, here goes the path to addiction or, you know, and sometimes it is, but it's not always. And as parents, we can create the worst stories in our head right away, right? And instead of lecturing your kid about, um, you told a lie, you vaped, you did this, and, you know, we're going to punish. If we look at the word discipline really means to teach, right? And so the best way to teach is to guide the kid to, to do the heavy thinking. You don't have to do it. So I sort of have this process I use with parents with questions when a kid makes a mistake. So, okay, Jason, look, you made this mistake. What mistake did you make? Can you describe the mistake that you made, right? So you're kind of having the kid do that that um, heavy thinking. And then I might follow that up with a question like, are you being the person that you mean to be, right? That is a powerful question as opposed to me telling you all the moral things you did wrong. I don't tell you any of that. I just say, are you being the person you mean to be? Powerful, right? right. And then maybe who was maybe hurt in this situation and what amends or repairs do you think that you need need to make, right? Just little questions like that. What do you think you'll do if you're faced with this situation in the future? And then ending any sort of guiding question process you take your kid through with, with a little statement that helps shape that self-talk. We are the kind of person people that take care of our mistakes. Look, you're the kind of person that takes care of your mistakes. And I think that's a lot more powerful than a lecture. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't want listeners to assume that we think that just because you can take good out of a bad situation doesn't mean you go back in the next semester and do the same thing you did last semester so that it's another quote unquote fail slash learning experience. No, you, you change, you adjust less classes, different classes, a different educational path altogether, maybe you know going to a vocational school or an internship um, or we really like to do... Um, what do they call when they go work under someone now? I've forgotten the name. Apprenticeship. Oh, we really like apprenticeships for a lot of reasons, as opposed to the traditional path forward. Well, so. you you bring up something interesting. Yeah, because it's not like you just keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. That's right. not going to happen, right? But I think another reframe for parents that also takes some pressures off kids, you know, that are later teens moving into the young adult years is giving them permission to pivot, right? Permission oh, yeah. to pivot. So we take this information that we learned in this what we'll call a failure, but a really a great failure, right? Like we learned something and it gives us permission to pivot and, and taking that pressure off our kids. You don't have to know what you're going to be or do for the rest of your life. And you can change that and sharing personal stories about how many times maybe you've pivoted in your own life, humanizing yourself with your kid and, and saying, you know, part of this time of life is not only learning what you want to do, but it's learning about who you're not. And that takes some experimenting. And maybe you're not going to take that linear path through college. And how do you learn that? You go have a semester or a year that doesn't go well. All right. Well, right. I'm going to pivot. What fits me better? And I think that's a much gentler, less um, pressure filled mm -hmm. environment than what are you going to do? You got to decide. You got to declare a major. You have to get on this path. You know, just no, to reduce hey. my to reduce my anxiety as a parent, you have to do all these things and meet the criteria and hit the milestones and even though you struggle all through your teen years, suddenly now that you're 21, we're going to hope that you can suddenly manage college on your own, for example. And mm -hmm. that's more for the parents' needs. When you bring up um, pivoting, it brings up agility. The word agile came to mind. And then that brings up resilience. And we we know that our, our kids, our students, our neurodiverse brains struggle with resilience. And a lot of times, parents struggle with that same agility and resilience. And they're the ones setting the example and the pace. What are some of the things that you see parents do that are the most common mistakes as far as rigidity, lack of the ability to pivot, changing expectations? What can you what can you advise and give recommendations for? Yeah. In that? Well, let's start first with sort of going back to the theme of containing our own anxiety about things. Right. And we all have a lot of thinking errors. We get into catastrophizing all our non thinking. And I think first, as parents, we have to stop believing every thought that comes through our mind. Right. And um, kind of 
slow down that catastrophizing. I'm an expert at that. I teach this stuff all day, but you know, applying it in your own life is, is hard, but I think I've kind of distilled it down to sort of four default modes that we have as parents when our kids are struggling, right? They're experiencing some kind of big emotion, something uncomfortable. They have a stumble, some kind of failure. I think we go into four modes, distract, deny, cheerlead or problem solve. And I think I personally kind of balance between all those and none of them cultivate resilience. And if I look back to parenting kids that really struggled with some mental health challenges, my biggest mistake was slipping into those modes and robbing them of opportunities to grow their emotional muscles and cultivate resilience. So let's kind of look at those. I mean, cheerleading is like, you can do it, right? Okay, get out of bed. It's not that bad. You can do it. You can do it you're kind of sending the message, you're making me uncomfortable with what's going on here. And I'm kind of denying and not validating that it's as bad for you as it is, that your reality is not not there. Um, I think I would cheerlead, distract sometimes. Hey, okay, yeah, let's go get some ice cream, right? Let's, let's go eat our feelings, <laughs> right? That's just total distract. None of us want to deal with this or denying, right? It's not that bad. Why can't you look at this differently? It's not that bad. Then we're we're teaching them like we don't allow feelings and that's that's not healthy, right? All feelings are okay, but all behaviors are not. And um then the last one is problem solve and I think I would go into that. Most parents probably slip into problem solving because it feels like control, right? Like you have some control over the situation. But you're kind of sending the message and shaping that self-talk to say you can't you can't do this. You can't handle it on your own. I need to come in and do this for you. And that's dangerous. That that doesn't promote resilience or wellness um or kind of help us on that runway to independence. So the, I think the first step is to acknowledge where do you fall? So where do you guys fall? What are your default modes as parents? I'm going to ask you, put you on the spot. Oh, like first one, problem solver mode. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a, we can we're see the really path. good problem solvers. We can see the path ahead. We know what's coming. We know where the pitfalls are. Let's just do this for you. It'll be so much easier for me to just do it for you than to watch you fall down. And, and then we have to be there to pick up the pieces financially, emotionally, <laughs> physically, whatever it is. And, well, you hit the nail on the head right there too. You said, because it's not only our anxiety, we're also busy, right? Our bandwidth is is stretched pretty thin in most of our lives. And so it's easier. It's just more time efficient for me to just do this in the upfront, right? But it's not going to save you time in the long run because they're not, they're not learning. And so I think the first step is to raise your level of awareness of where do you slip and then kind of taking a pause. There's a lot of power in the pause, right? breaking some of your habitual momentum to go to your default mode. And then I go back to guiding questions. How do we guide our children to be solvers of their own problems or to navigate their difficult emotions? So Dan Siegel, you know, Dan Siegel, who's the psychiatrist, has written a lot of books. Um, oh, gosh, now Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, Whole Brain Child, is that one? Uh, the Yes Brain, there's so many of them. People can look up. Dan Siegel, and he says, we have to be able to name it to tame it. And to me, that's part of creating um, emotionally literate kids and cultivating resilience is being able to map your inner landscape. And there's some nuance, right? Like be, there's, it has to go beyond I'm sad, I'm mad, I'm happy. So there's a great tool, and maybe you can link it in your show notes, the Mood Meter the Yale uh, Center for Emotional Intelligence created it. And there's even just like a little printout you can Google. And it just has all these words. And just like, hey, you're really, I see that you're really hurting right now. You're really upset. Can you pick a word on here that maybe more closely describes what you're feeling? And it might take kids a while, especially neurodiverse kids, to, to pinpoint it. But it's a great exercise that also, if their switch is flipped and they're in that downstairs brain, they're dysregulated. It kind of moves them up into more thinking brain because you're like, oh, I have to kind of pick a word here. So name it to tame it, right? And that, and a lot of our neurodiverse kids are very literal thinkers, and so mm -hmm. being able to give them specific words, it makes it not so nuanced, and it kind of brings it more concrete for them and, and into their understanding. So, yeah, so. Love so that. Yeah. So like, we'll recap, let's, let's go back. So this process is, first of all, raise your level of awareness. What default mode, what habitual momentum are you trying to follow that isn't serving you? Pause, stop, 
kind of turn it over to your kids. Let's let's name it. Let's name it to tame it. Where are you? And then, okay, you, you've named an emotion. And is there some good reason for this? Is this here to teach us something? Is there a shift that needs to be made because this, this has appeared? Or is our mind playing tricks on us, right? Is this a thought that you don't need to give a lot more energy or narrative to? And can we like look at it as a storm or a group of clouds just kind of passing through us, right? And there's both emotions. Some emotions come because they need to drive some kind of action. Some are our minds, you know, just playing tricks on us. So helping your kids start to wade through what deserves energy and what doesn't. And the stuff that deserves energy, can we reframe that as like, great, this showed up because we're going to come out the other side stronger. Right. So that's well, a, that's one process. If I could apply this and maybe fill in a, a few gaps for what neurodiverse parents and neurodiverse teens and young adults deal with. One, they don't have the insight often to say that's the feeling I'm feeling. Two, parents do have to walk with their child, show their child more often and more specific. And so if if we're expecting them to learn how to ride a bike, for example, and most kids can watch it, see it, you can hold their seat while they start to pedal and they get the hang of it. We have to chunk ours down into so many more learning steps and be very concrete on if you start to lean, you're going to turn into the lean a little bit and pedal a little faster. And then, and even then we have to get on the bike with them and pedal with them for a while just to get their muscles in the same. And there's so many things that we have to do. And that's where it's hard for us, I think, as parents and mentors to not feel like we're enabling when we shouldn't have to quote unquote, shouldn't there's that swear word. We shouldn't have to do that many teaching steps. So therefore I'm either a bad parent, they're a bad learner, or I'm enabling them because I'm doing too much. And, and then when they've done too much, quote unquote, from what a typical mind would, would require, it's easy to judge ourselves and say we enabled or we're doing it for them when the reality is their learning differences are so hard because of our expectations and what we think they should be able to do and they can't. I think our students really do need us to pedal the bike with them, which we wouldn't have to do with a typical kid at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it is harder. It takes more time, um, a lot more repetition, a lot more patience. It's just harder all around. And so we have to be even better at the principles you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Than, than I would assume um, my typical kids experience. They Our typical kids were easy compared to our atypical kids and they just had different learning curves. Yeah, and so meeting them where they're at, right? That's always been my teaching philosophy too. You gotta meet them where they're at and where they're at developmentally too. And, and repetition, I mean, this is, um, most of us weren't even taught this skill who are quote neurotypical, right? No one- right really worked with me in an intentional way on how to navigate uncomfortable emotions or said, Hey, guess what? 50% or more of life is sort of, um, you know, discomfort and uncertainty. No one tells you that. Right. And so you experience it and then you're like, something's wrong. Wrong. And you know, right. And so also I think I, I go to this concept a lot too, just humanizing yourself with your kid, sharing your struggles. I think sometimes we think as parents, we need to present that we have it all together. And I remember the first time I it wasn't that long ago that I told my older daughter I was anxious about something. She goes, you have anxiety? I said, everybody has anxiety. You didn't know this? That like, that's just kind of part of the human condition. And I think kids are starting to think that they're disorders, right? They're, and sometimes anxiety does cross over into a disorder, but just that there's a, a normal level and that all human beings experience this discomfort, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so if you weren't having some anxiety in your life, there's probably something wrong, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Other way, if you weren't having it. Like- exactly. And so, so humanizing yourself, telling your kids about your struggles with, with failures, with uh, handling stress, with big emotions, like really putting yourself in the boat with them, um, I think is such a powerful teaching teacher. Right. We like to say that we, we want our students to become we want them to get out of their comfort zones, but not overwhelmed. And our job is to help them learn what actually overwhelmed means. Just because they feel overwhelmed when something's uncomfortable doesn't make it that doesn't actually make it true. You're still managing, you're still going forward. It's scary, it's hard. Be courageous, be resilient. I'll I'll be here in case you actually get overwhelmed, but you're still you're still doing it. 
You're teaching them to avoid those thinking errors, that all or none thinking, right? Right. You're saying, wait, let's let's step back and look at the evidence here in the big picture. Um, and that's perspective taking. And parenting coaches and educational consultants do that all the time with parents. And that's one of the ways you guys help us run our program is you support the parents when their anxiety gets out of control because they don't know. They're they're afraid of what could happen. They're, uh, they see all the possible pitfalls. They've lived it their whole life. And I that's something I appreciate about what you do is you help parents say, let's look at the evidence and let's back up and, and look at the facts. Well, I think we try to parent from our place of all those what ifs, trying to outguess what's going to happen. And and that's not an effective way of parenting. It just kind of, um, it keeps the anxiety cycle between our kids and us just going round and round and round. And I wanted to say one more thing, you know, we were talking about guiding questions and I said that question, you can ask your kid if they make a a mistake, you know, they tell a lie, they maybe steal something, they um, maybe use a substance, you know, that question, are you being the person you mean to be? I think part of humanizing ourselves with our kids is we're going to make mistakes. Like we can try this process that I give you and, um, you know, work, it's going to be like a spiral. And sometimes we're going to move up the spiral and sometimes we're going to move back down. It's not linear. And you just have to say, hey, am I getting like a 1% improvement? Yay, I'm winning, right? And part of teaching your kids is to model some of these things. So let's say you you lose your cool, you don't navigate a situation, you you jump in and solve a problem and you wish you hadn't. You can you can backtrack and make repair and say, you know what? I'm not being the person I mean to be right now. I'm not being the parent I mean to be right now. I need a do over there. And that's a really powerful way of sort of apologizing and saying, I'm trying. I'm in the boat with you. I'm a learner for life. And I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not being that person I mean to be. So I'm gonna take a do-over. That's a powerful way of modeling that concept to your kid. Yeah. And it's such a kindness really for our, to do that for our kids and to say, it's okay to, you know, I'm human. And you're I'm human. human. We're, we're both human. We're in the human experience together. We just have different responsibilities because I'm a parent, mm-hmm. um, but I feel all the same things that yeah. you feel. We both actually want the same things. Sometimes we just fight about how to get there. It, you're right. I like how you said that Debbie, it's a kindness to ourselves and to our kids. And we need more gentleness in the world. I want to go back a little bit to for that parent that really is worried and and is a worrier. Like, Mm -hmm. who do we do? Because we don't want to be putting that onto our kids and creating that anxiety spin and that 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 ongoing pattern of like I'm worried about you, and then that the the child's worried, and that like and they might be valid. They might be very much valid concerns, right? Fears are often valid. That doesn't mean they have to become out of balance. But how do they determine that? What do they do? I mean, I think we know when we can take some time to be still, when we're sort of, uh, um, have you ever heard the phrase, oh, I'm borrowing trouble, right? The trouble isn't really here. I'm just kind of borrowing it by imagining all these disasters that can happen. And so I think a lot of it is just raising your level of awareness of asking yourself the question, is this true? Do I know this to be true? Is this really true? And some of that is just slowing down. And that's why, like, you know, I've recently started studying the mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, There's great, I recommend those classes. There's eight-week classes that people can look up that teach you these techniques, give you just some, some, uh, some breathing things, some sort of grounding in your body, and just kind of just calming down your nervous system, which is really, um, in us as parents, it's really on heightened alert, especially when we're parenting kids through some really scary or big, big things. So just, I guess, asking, you're slowing yourself down, asking yourself the question, is this true? Am I sure this is true? Am I maybe falling into all or none thinking or catastrophizing? And then, you know, doing some self-care, finding some time to maybe do some of these breathing techniques or some just different, different things to put you in the moment and out of the future, right? Because when we're in the future, it's causing anxiety. When we're in the past, it's causing we're in regret. And, you know, I think we live in those two places quite a bit as parents. So, um, you know, and, and, and when we are caught in that spin, we're missing opportunity to connect with our kids. And Debbie, I think you and I were talking about how do you deepen connection? And I don't know if your audience knows about the emotional bank account concept or the relationship bank account. 
concept. Do you guys know about this? We we haven't talked about it on our podcast, but it's a kind of a common thing in marriage counseling where we use emotional bank accounts. So if you want to explain it, that'd be great. Yeah, I, I sometimes I'll call it the relationship bank account, sometimes the emotional bank account. And this has actually been studied through the Gottman Institute, which they do a lot with, um, you know, marriage uh coaching and but they've sort of moved into parenting and family work too and there's some science behind this and so i describe it as it's the accumulation of goodwill in a relationship right it's how the other person makes you feel my favorite maya angelou quote is people will forget what you said people will forget what you did but people will not forget how you made them feel so how do we make our kids feel and and so I, I did a podcast on this and I wrote a script out and I said, okay, what do I think my kids hear from me in a day? And this was kind of, you know, during high school time before COVID, right? When we were actually going to school all the time. And, and I would sort of, what do I say to them before we go to school? And then maybe if we get to connect after school, after activities, a little bit before dinner, maybe a little bit before bed. And my script, made, I was reading it on my podcast and I was so sad and it was causing so much anxiety to read it because it was just a list of corrections and nagging and teaching because we equate our role of being parents as we've got so much to get through. We're busy. we got to get through the to-do list. We have so much to teach them. And it was just... It was well-meaning, but it was, you know, everything from, it's cold outside. Did you get a coat? Have you packed your lunch? You didn't eat this in your lunch yesterday. What do you want in your lunch today? I asked you to unload the dishwasher. You didn't unload the dishwasher. Did you talk to your math teacher about, you know, X, Y, and Z? And that's what it was. And I thought, wow, how does that make our kids feel? That's it's exhausting just to hear you describe it. <laughs> but it's, it's relatable. Out, <laughs> no, but it's relatable. And so, yeah. and, and I think if most of us are honest, that's our dialogue because we're so busy, right? So how do you make deposits in the relationship bank account? Because those are withdrawals in a lot of ways, right? So part of it is power in the pause, take a pause and ask yourself, is this communication meant to control or correct in some way, or is it meant to connect? I'm going to say that again. You take that pause. Is this communication meant to control or correct, or is it meant to connect? And opt for connection as often as you can. We don't need to say everything that we think we need to say to our kids, right? So sometimes a deposit in that bank account is simply not taking a withdrawal. It's just holding your tongue. Sometimes a deposit is a repair. Hey, I'm not being the parent I want to be right now. I'm not being the person I want to be. That's a huge deposit. Mm -hmm. Or a compliment, right? It can be it can be a compliment, but connecting a compliment um to a character trait. Hey, I noticed how good you were at calming yourself down just then and taking a break when you're feeling upset. Wow, you're really developing some really great self-management um, skills. Huge right. deposit, right? Yeah. So the relationship bank account the or the emotional bank account, the science says we need five deposits to make up for one withdrawal. So you want to have that really healthy, healthy balance. Cause we're going to take withdrawals. I'm going to yell. I'm going to not be the parent I mean to be, but you're just aiming to have that deposit really healthy. And just always thinking, how does my kid feel being around me? Right. A tangible example of that is one of our tenants is that we want to say yes, whenever we possibly can. So that when we do say no, they're like, Oh, I guess that must be a big deal. Cause I, I know they want me to be able to do the things I asked for because they've gone out of their way to say yes as much as they possibly could. Um, so I love that. that Absolutely. And another deposit is joining them in their world. Maybe your kid's really obsessed about Minecraft or some other game and you could care less, right? You kind of force yourself to, to really become curious join them in their world and allow them to be an expert at something yeah, and enjoy them. Yeah. That's how you're enjoying the moment is you're enjoying them while they're enjoying the Minecraft. That builds so much credit. We do that at our, at our school all the time. Our mentors will go and sit and watch them game or watch shows with them that they're not interested in silly anime. They could get into SpongeBob and just connect through <laughs> watching what they're interested in for hours. And that, that makes the difference in two weeks from now when there's a crisis and there's so much deposit in an emotional bank account that they can come in and help. Or you can even banter or like refer back to something. Now you've got like this connection with them of like, yeah. we have this like 
language, language, and inside <laughs> jokes. Yeah. And, and I think going back to the games too, just like, Hey, teach me something, show me something. I think allowing them to be an expert, especially when they feel like they've been the focus of treatment for yeah. so many years. They're the broken like, one. Right. Yeah, and they're the getting, problem. that's a protective factor to allow them to say, I feel really capable. And this person is asking me to teach them something. I think that's a really great, uh, it's a huge deposit and it's a great skill for building building resilience and shaping that self-talk to become more positive within the the kid. That seems to be the common theme through your podcast as well. Tell us a little bit more about the connection and why that is so important because attachment for us as adoptive parents and parents was huge, but we're realizing it's probably the most effective intervention we have with with any of our neurodiverse brains. Um, Anyone we're trying to mentor is connection. That's huge. Why well, when, yeah, like your program at Techie for Life, I've had the privilege of touring it and spending some time with you guys and seeing some things in action. And it's relational, right? It's relationship based. Everybody's out there trying to form relationships. And I think we can look at connection in a few different ways. And I also take this from the work of Dr. Shafali. And she has this analogy, if your hand represents the hand of life, the, the pinky represents all the measurables, right? The accomplishments, grades, performative tasks, right? Uh, sports, music, whatever, the things that we, we put quite a bit of weight right here, right? The other four fingers represent connection and maybe connection in ways we haven't thought. So connection to yourself, connection to your family, connection to a community and connection to a sense of purpose. And when kids are experiencing a mental health crisis, it's at its root, it's a disconnect somewhere, right? Or maybe in more than one of those areas, I don't feel connected to myself. I don't feel connected. I'm caught in power struggles with my parents. I don't feel connected to them. I don't feel connected or valued by a community. And I feel purposeless. I don't feel a connection to purpose. But as a culture and in parenting training, and by that, I mean what came through us, a lot of the focus is on that pinky. Oh, let's see your report card. Oh, look, you got four A's. Here's Let's go get ice cream. Here's some money for your A's or whatever. Here's a trophy for soccer. We've put a lot of focus here and not a lot of intentional focus on cultivating these four areas of connection. And those are those protective factors for resilience, for mental wellness. And I think the technology, one of the downsides of technology is that our kids escape into their phones instead of connecting to themselves, to their inner world. We do it as adults. We model it. We can't be bored or anxious without grabbing our phone, right? We're sitting in the DMV and you're waiting for a long time. You escape into your phone instead of saying, I could take a moment to be in my body, take some deep breaths, look around, connect with someone around me, kind of understand my own feelings more, whatever. But we escape discomfort, anxiety, boredom by going into our technology or numbing out with Netflix or, you know, on the more extreme ends, um, food, alcohol, drugs, whatever. So how do we reestablish connection um, to ourselves and model that, do it ourselves as parents and then model that for our kids and teach them how. Um, And then, of course, working How do we make our kids feel that connection to family and those deposits we talked about getting involved in a community of some kind um, so that they have more pro-social adults and relationships and and feel connected and valued as part of community. And then that connection to purpose and that permission to pivot goes back in there. Right. So, you know, your purpose can change and you can experiment, but just feeling needed, feeling part of something larger. And I don't think anyone ever taught me to look at connection that way. And so I think that's really important for parents to break it down into those four kind of areas and make sure that they're balanced. Well, and I was thinking about when you were talking about this, how connecting, not just when they're happy about something, but connecting when they're sad or struggling with something, like being with them in it, in the emotions, um, present. present with them. And not having to fix it, but just being with with them in it is like that's not not jump into what do we do, what do we do, but how are we right now in the moment is way more important. It is. We we tell parents that come to our school all the time the first thing we focus on that is critical to getting to your tasks and your performative things that I think you want, but you say you want them to be happy, but then the parenting comes back to fixing and planning and doing. We say we we need to meet their social emotional needs first. And once they have belonging, then they can become, and that's kind of our motto is belong to become. Mm -hmm. And it's huge. As far as if you really do want to accomplish performative tasks, that's the most effective way to do it is connection first. 
Yeah, and happiness is fleeting. None of us are happy all the time. When parents tell me, I just want my kid to be happy, I say, well, let's let's say, let's reframe that. I want my kid to be capable. I want to feel like my kid is capable of weathering the roller coaster of life because none of us escape without some ups and downs. And so sitting with them, no one likes to be alone in their discomfort, right? And maybe kids feel alone in their discomfort when we slip into those modes we talked about. Mm-hmm. Cheerlead, distract, deny, problem solve, as opposed to, like you said, Jason, like, you seem really sad. Like, this is a rough day. I see that. That's hard. I see it. Just, I see you. Right. And I'll sit with you until this storm passes. No feeling is final. Nothing lasts forever. We're going to have such a huge deposit. (laughs) You're talking about like, that's a huge deposit when someone is willing to do that for you. Right. Like it's one of the biggest gifts we can give our kids, kids is to just be with them in the discomfort and not have to fix it or all the, the four things you were talking about. It's even more important for parents of neurodiverse to understand that because they are developmentally delayed, they may get there, but they're usually almost almost consistently about five years behind their peers in their milestones, dating, driving, jobs, college, you name it. If, if you can just change your expectations and add five years, you're going to be right more often than not. And then it shifts from are we accomplishing things to what are the tasks we want to accomplish? And those tasks are, are, are we present? Are we connected? Are we at peace? Are we sitting with sorrow and feeling deeply together? Because if you want them to be happy, let's start practicing what, that it's okay to be sad, that it's okay to be lonely sometimes, that you know the, the emotional connections with ourself yeah. is so important and then with others. And maybe, you know, once again, not hiding those human experiences that you have as a parent. I get really sad sometimes too. I have some hard days too, right? Don't shelter them from that. And in the mindfulness studies that I've been doing with the mindfulness-based stress reduction, I, I heard someone use the term that they're visiting forces, right? That come in and disrupt our ease, right? And, and so I love the term visiting. Hey, sadness is visiting right now. It's visiting, right? It's here, but it doesn't get a move in. Right. But we're going to have some tea with it and move forward. Right. And on the flip side, happiness visits as well. Mm-hmm. And expected to be a permanent guest. The only constant is, I think, if we're OK in the process, which I would refer to as peace. Am I at peace? Am I do I have serenity? Am I OK with all of the emotions that I'm feeling? Because the anxiety is not OK. Stress is OK. Anxiety is not. Crises can be okay if I'm okay in the crises. But if I'm in crises, that's different. Well, accept that it's here, right? It's here. I accept that it's here, but I also have to control my thinking to say it's not here forever. I don't want to go to that all or none thinking or that catastrophizing, but accepting it's here because I think when we resist it, it gets a little stronger. Yeah. So I, li- I like that. I like going back to, just to add these all together, you can't have a deep relationship and connect with your child if all you do is say, well, we have a lot of, we have we have quality time, but there's just not much quantity. Relationships are based on time together. You can't tell yourself as a parent that, well, the time we do have is always good, even though it's only like an hour a week. It's just not going to cut it. If we don't intentionally choose to invest time and positive experience while we're together, then, then it's just not going to work. There's only, that's the only way you can invest into that emotional bank account, and then have the influence of relationship to mentor, encourage, cheerlead without becoming the owner of it or or cheerleading because it's our stress. I think all the things that you mentioned, the cheerleading and the others, they can be good at certain times. Maybe our motive and how we are about it makes the difference. Right. As long as we're still, we have the flip side of that, right? Where we're allowing for the emotions and allowing for them to to experience these big feelings and sitting with them in the distress instead of saying those shouldn't be here. Right. Right. We can cheer them on and say, this is really hard and you can do this and I'll sit and cry with you. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a great Um, way to do it. Yeah. And I mean, none of this is easy. and And I think the, the biggest thing that we can, the most effective thing we can do as parents is learn to sort of tame our own anxiety and our own reactivity. And that means slowing down. Like, where can we slow down our life? That was probably a benefit of the lockdown, right? In the beginning, it got old, but, you know, just having more margins of time to allow for that um, quantity and quality time with our kids, right? So where can we slow down? How are we modeling, regulating ourselves, right? 
And um, what's our self-care practice? I know that's kind of a buzzword, but how are we taking care of ourselves so we aren't so reactive because we're just stretched so thin? And Mm -hmm. I always tell parents like self-care isn't selfish. You're modeling. How do you want your kids to take care of themselves in adulthood? Are you being that person now? How, how, you know, your hopes for them as they move into an adult, do you want them to be as stressed out as, as you are and as stretched thin and, and, you know, with no margins of time on, you know, on the edges. So I think that it goes back to modeling too, right? So tame your reactivity and, and, um, how are you modeling calm and ease and peace as well as navigating the the ups and downs in your life. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This is so much here <laughs> that uh, to, t- to take away from. Um, how can people find you, Vashti, if if they're wanting to sure. get help from you? What, what, where, where, do they, where can they find you online? And yeah, you so- tell us a bit more about what you do. Okay. So yeah, I wear two hats. I'm a parent coach and then I'm a therapeutic educational consultant. So I explain that, that I work with, sometimes I work with parents before things are a crisis or maybe things are kind of escalating and maybe their, um, their kid is in some kind of individual therapy and the parents are wanting to say, okay, what can I do on my part? What, where can we fix some things in the system? So I'll put on my coaching hat and work with, with parents in that way. And then sometimes things do escalate and, and things just aren't working in the context of the home and, and everybody needs a break and there needs to be some kind of program. Um, and at that point, I'll put on my therapeutic consulting hat and help identify that right level of treatment and match, you know, match that family, give the family some good options to consider when they need to go to go that route. So those are the sort of the two hats that I wear. Um, and I think I use the coaching in all of it, right? Because it's a really hard decision to send your kid away to some kind of residential program. That's really a decision that's never taken lightly. And, and so there's a lot of coaching that goes into that too. Um, so I have a website, it's familyhealingpathways.com and pathways is plural. And there's also an online learning button on there with a lot of free resources, um, like podcast episodes and a couple of video blogs and a little online class I created. Um, and so, yeah, people can reach me there. I'm kind of hit and miss with social media. I have an Instagram. I think it's at Family Healing Pathways. So is my Facebook page. And there's a lot of content on there, but I wouldn't say I'm like a regular poster. I get, I kind of get a little overwhelmed myself doing too much social media posting, but there should be lots and lots of content on there from the past, but just don't expect regular posts. <laughs> but those are the the places and you can also um, contact me. There's a contact button from my website. If anybody just wants a, a free consultation, just a conversation, I'm not sure what I need. Just call me. Awesome. And we will link to that in our show notes so people can find that there also. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on and we really appreciate you sharing your insights. And so we hope our listeners, we hope you have an amazing week and know that being a parent of a neurodiverse kiddo is a journey and we all grow and develop even our neurodiverse kids in that journey. So thanks for being here and have a great week. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. com.